Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week, even in the summer. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, the illustrious Ed Condon. Ed, how do you do, and what does it mean to be illustrious anyway? Um, I'm warm, J.D. I'm very warm. You're warm. Mm. It's, uh, it's a normal D.C. summer here. It's 90-plus degrees, has been for about a week. And my air conditioner broke, so oh. it's uh, oh. it's warm in in my now, office. I, I'm very sorry to hear that. I I I um I am very sorry to hear that. On the other hand, I have sort of a a uh, I don't know if you have this, but I have a sort of reflection reflexive aversion to air conditioner. I have for a long time. Uh, we didn't have air conditioning growing up, and my parents sort of conditioned me to believe that air conditioning was um not only sort of soft and unnecessary, but they also sort of conditioned me to believe that air conditioning was um, in some way, I, I don't exactly know how, but I sort of affiliated our our, la- our not using air conditioning with our, our faith. And this was well ahead of Laudato Si, and there wasn't a sort of express sort of um, ecological component to it. It was more as if like, well, we uh, uh, more sort of, I suppose, penitential or um, um, something like that kind of disposition uh, against uh, air conditioning. And I don't even know if they habituated me that way or if I just sort of made that up as we went along. Um, well, good for you, I guess. <laughs> now, now, I mean, now we I, we use an air conditioner or or the attic fan, um, but we use an air conditioner a lot because the kids and everything. And But, uh, you know, anyway. I, I am that way about heating in the winter. Mm. I, mm. I'm definitely a put on a third sweater sort of person. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I don't tend to wear sweaters but i mean you know i'm i'm that way inclined that you know i don't i do view heating the house in the winter to be a a sort of candy ass extravagance that shouldn't be indulged in but when it's 300 percent humidity and 95 degrees outside i'm sorry we've got the technology i'm using it sure i guess i mean you know i I, i'm not that way about heating but i I don't know something about the summertime i feel like sleep on the sleep on the kitchen floor man sleep in the sleeping porch and i recognize of course that parts of the country right now are going through um extraordinarily unprecedented moments of heat and that there are more coming and all of those things. And, and, and at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, uh, apparent cy- cycle of, uh, air conditioning, per, you know, sort of perpetuating the very things which lead to that. I don't know. I don't want to talk about global warming, uh, or climate change to you. No, no, I Good. do not. Really Lord, do I not want to talk about that? Yeah. No, I alluded so anyway. to it once in a newsletter and I got, I thought I was just sort of, you know, drive by saying I'm not going to talk about this. And I got a lot of feedback for, for saying I wasn't going to talk about it while I went, didn't talk about it. I mean, I, no, I don't want to talk about that. Okay, good. Then let's talk about the church, huh? Please. Okay, because we have a lot of things that we want to talk about in this show. And um, uh, we probably have an ambitious list of things that we want to talk about. But uh, I'd like to try to get through as many of them as we can. And I, I want to start with um, a story that's in the news that we've been covering it just a little bit, but it's been... Uh, in 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 the news um, everywhere, uh, which is the um, sort of uh, ongoing um, confirmation of unmarked graves at uh, residential schools, former resident, the site of former residential schools um, in Canada, and then um, and, and what a, a backlash against the church uh, in the press for the church's role in residential school policy in Canada, and then uh, what has now become a spate of church burnings in Canada that seem uh, at least to be. Uh, correlated with uh, with the backlash of residential school um, grave, con- grave unmarked grave confirmation. Yeah, uh, this is. I mean, th- there's nothing you want to hear, see, or read about less than 
hundreds of unmarked graves, some of them for children as young as three, apparently. I mean, this is this is about as grim as it gets in terms of subject matter. Uh, it, it's not good. And obviously, this has caused considerable anguish um, in the in the First Nations communities in Canada, which which were basically forced to send their children to these schools for much of the 20th century. Um, it's been a terrible black eye for the church, which ran the majority of these schools in the country, at least as far as I understand it. Um, it's it's been pretty bad, and then of course there have been these this this spate of fires in Catholic churches, most of them on on sort of uh, I'm, I'm trying to tiptoe around the language here because I don't know what the legal language is for Canada, um, but it's basically tribal land. What what would be the equivalent, perhaps, of re- reservations? And again, we don't quite know the the right uh, the right language for that, but um, uh, maybe I just want to give kind of a little bit of the sort of history of this um this issue uh just because i think there's a lot of uh, I, in my perception a lot of what's happening sort of in 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 public spaces right now uh is largely predicated on um misrepresentation or mis sort of understanding of of uh, of what is an extraordinarily tragic um situation an extraordinarily tragic sort of chapter in uh, in in the history of canada and, and one which has an analog in in the united states in fact but um, I think it's good to sort of understand it a- as it is, and I've been trying to do that myself. So um, essentially, uh, you know, starting kind of in the mid-19th century, it was the policy of Canada's uh, government to essentially, um, I would say Americanize if it was America, but Canadianize um, Aboriginal children, children who were living uh, in tribal communities, mostly by that time on on, on tribal land, where, the, you know, obviously the, there's a similar history to um, the Aboriginal communities in, in Canada as there is in the United States where uh, there were treaties which sort of meted out tribal land over the, over the centuries in which Canada was sort of settled by uh, um, uh, Western and European settlers. Um, but by the late 19th century, there was a government policy by which children who lived um, on tribal lands were, uh, you know, essentially compelled to go to these residential schools which had the aim of sort of Canadizing, Westernizing uh, these um uh, kids and and so these schools were sort of government schools. It was a government policy, but co- administered by contract with um, Catholic religious orders, Catholic dioceses, Anglican dioceses, um, United Church, which is kind of a uh, Protestant Reformed um, you know tradition churches um, institutions as well, and then some which were not essentially religiously affiliated. Although that that was the minority, and indeed, as you say, the majority of the schools were contracted with. Uh, um, uh, religious institutions, you know, with religious institutes or dioceses. And um, and those schools, uh, a recent sort of independent examination of this sort of period of Canadian history says that those schools contributed to what would now be called a cultural genocide, which is to say the sort of eradication of um, of the culture of the various Aboriginal communities in Canada because there was, they were compelled to speak English at these schools. Um, the, there was a, a loss of um, tribal religious practice and this tribal uh, view of of, uh, of history and cosmology and uh, a loss of the family structures that constituted um, tribal cult, you know, the basis of, of tribal culture. And, and, uh, and so these schools are largely sort of um, credited as being part of a set of Canadian government policies by which uh, Aboriginal culture was in, in many ways decimated uh, across Canada. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, they were not especially well-funded and um, they had so so they had the sort of overcrowding and undernutrition problems of many institutions of the time, coupled with 
incidences of abuse that are connected to the rest of the incidences of abuse in the in, in the church's history. And also disease. Yeah, and also disease. Well, yeah, so that that's a big thing is that so um, indi- indigenous communities in Canada were um, – uh, had higher incidence of any number of communicable diseases um, uh, than uh, other parts of Canada for a, a variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, and and at residential schools in which people lived kind of on top of each other, kids lived kind of on top of each other, the transmission of communicable diseases um, w- was a very high rate. And so uh, the kids who went there had very, very high rates of disease. And, and, and along with that, um, malnutrition and, um, you know, slow growth and, and these kinds of things. And mortality. And mortality, right? The big one is mortality. So as a consequence of that, the mortality rates of children who were enrolled at residential schools was much, much, much higher than the, than the correlative mortality rate of children who lived in Canada in other ways. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the schools were, um, were what, what I have described. Um, there is, I think, a desire among a lot of Catholics to to sort of not impugn the motives of the religious, you know, the people who were members of the religious institutes that ran those schools. And I don't think one has to impugn the motives to recognize that um, in, in many cases for a preponderance of circumstances, the schools did not live up to what the church would wish for her institutes and apostles to live up to um, as, a, as a sort of exercise of uh, Christian education or charity. I, I think that's putting it mildly, yeah. Well, yeah, by a long shot. I mean, I think that's, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, it, there are um, historical issues around um, funding and how these schools are funding, as you said, and, and right. you know, how this translates into high instances of diseases and, and mortality rates. But then this sort of discovery of all of these hundreds, nearly a thousand now, unmarked graves across at least three sites attached to these former residential schools. Um is part and parcel of that because yeah. you know the reason these children were buried in the way they were it seems is because there just wasn't the money or funding given for either the um, children's to be returned to their own families for burial it seems like there was very poor or little or no communication with the families when a child died about what had happened or anything like that and and as a result they ended up in their hundreds and unmarked graves which are still being discovered in, in, in current in currently unmarked graves. So let so you know I, I just want to be clear. I, you know, th- there is a move to say, well, look, let's not sort of impugn the motives of those who ran residential schools. And I appreciate why there's a desire to do that. On the other side of the coin, I don't think there's anyone who's right now looking back at the history of residential schools and saying this is a good chapter in the history of the church, or these are things that we should be proud of. Or, you know, on the contrary, the church has said very directly, um, these were not run well, these were not administered well. Um, we did not take the time to sort of appreciate the significance of what these of what these schools were doing with regard to the cultures uh, you know and communities and families and individuals with whom we were interfacing um so uh you know there is there is this sort of ongoing kind of um move among some to sort of be defensive of the church and say well you know you have to take it in the time and 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 um you know judge it according to the standards of the time um and um there is a way i think in which one has to be careful sort of not to impugn the immediate sort of conscious motives of those who were involved in residential schools. But I think it is possible to look back at the residential school period and their practices. And if you read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, as I have and other things, um, that these were uh, governed poorly with a, without uh, a clear understanding of the way in which they would impact um, it, both individuals and cultures, um, governed without sufficient funding or appreciation for various aspects of the human person, and um, governed in such a way that they allowed, left themselves open to um, incidences of, of, you know, 
both personal and systemic uh, abuse of minors um, in, in, in any number of ways. So um, I don't think we should sort of underplay the problems of residential schools. With regard to the burials, mortality was very high, as we just said. And um, there was sort of a fight between some residential schools and the Canadian government about who would pay for burials, the transportation of bodies back to communities and those kinds of things. And at the end of the day, most of the time, the Canadian government said, we won't. And so it was sort of incumbent upon the residential schools themselves to conduct burials. And in some cases, you know, they were totally unprepared for waves of disease that would run through their schools and, you know, many, many children would die. And so what's happened is that children were buried in funeral in cemeteries that didn't have perpetual care fund, you know, perpetual care trusts, which would assure the ongoing care of the cemetery or um, where grave markers weren't um, permanent and well fixed and these kinds of things and well cared for. And especially as the schools started to close in the 60s and the property was alienated and in some cases the religious orders pulled out um, or people stopped tending to the properties, even graves which were at the time marked, which is the case I think for, for many of these, graves which at, which at the time marked became uncared for, unmarked. And so there has been a study over the past few years to sort of identify the places where children who went to residential schools were buried um, using a combination of like maps and surveys and those kinds of things, plus ground penetrating radar, which can sort of detect the density of things under the ground in order to sort of identify where graves are. And that confirmation that's coming from ground penetrating radar is what's been happening over the last month now, two months. Yeah, that's exactly what's been happening. Um, and yeah. I mean, what you say about, you know, currently unmarked graves is an important distinction. I, you know, I don't, I don't know the exact disposition of every one of the, where are we now? I, I, we may actually be over a thousand at this point. I think. Over a thousand. Yeah. Um, is, but I mean, it's certainly true that if, for example, you mark a grave with a wooden cross in 1910, Right. That wooden cross isn't going to be there in 2020. It right, just exactly. it just isn't. Um exactly. and so but I mean again this the it, it, it's not it reflects tragically in every direction. Um it is it's not good and we right. you know we we've seen um this spate of I think seven churches that have been well set fire to is basically what's yeah. happened to them. I mean um you know the investigations are ongoing etc cetera, etc cetera, but I mean it's it seems fairly clear um, from what we know, and it seems fairly clear to local authorities that these were intentionally set fires, and um, they were they were all Catholic churches, with one exception, one was an Anglican church uh, mm-hmm. in the in the same region of Canada where these discoveries are being made. As I said, many of the, all of these churches, I think, uh, with maybe one exception, uh, were on sort of tribal land, as it were, um, and it does seem to be accompanying. Uh, at least the the public outcry against the the church's historical affiliation with these residential schools, and because the church has sort of become the focal point of the of the of the this current, you know, the, the confirmation of these grave sites has opened a real a sort of wound in Canadian culture, and there's been a lot of. <sighs> press and media and commentary about that. And the church has sort of become the focal point of this sort of aggression and, and anger and frustration about this. Is that right, Ed? That is right. And you've had, uh, I, I think, to some extent, um, the Canadian government looking to distance itself from the events around these residential schools. You've had the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, um, basically saying he'd spoken to Pope Francis and said, you have to apologize. And if possible, you should be apologizing on Canadian soil, I think was what he said. Well, so so the Truth and Reconciliation Report, when it came out in 2015, had with it like, 
I want to say 60 or more recommendations for um, ways in which there could be healing and reconciliation, which is not uncommon. After apartheid, there was a similar sort of third-party investigation and then a a set of recommendations for healing and reconciliation. And I think there was a similar thing after a third-party investigation into clerical sexual abuse in Ireland. So those kind of sort of reports and then recommendations are, are not uncommon and in in the sort of investigation of human rights um, tragedies and abuses. And one of the recommendations from that report in 2015 was that the Pope would make an apology for the church's complicity in these things or an involvement in these things um, on Canadian soil, which the Pope has, has not done and which Trudeau has now sort of um, begun talking about extensively. Yeah. And I mean, Pope Francis did um, this week acknowledge the acknowledge the whole affair in his uh, Wednesday Angelus address, I think, and, you know, expressed his, his sorrow at the whole thing. Um, it's now come out that the Vatican is going to host um, three separate delegations in December of the Indigenous Peoples of Canada, First Nations, um, Inuit, and I'm trying to remember the name of the third community, um, but basically hosting survivors from all three of these these mm-hmm. distinct peoples um, who are survivors of these uh, residential schools and that, you know, the Pope will meet with them and, and there will be a, a joint mass at the end and everything. And and I'm sure the Pope will say many other things in December when, when that happens. Um, I mean, to me, this, this raises, of course, the, this is the risk of the, of the church um, say, taking sort of institutional um, care for state, services effectively mm-hmm. um which is what's happened in canada i mean this is also to a great extent what's happened in in ireland that you know in particularly in ireland where you know states are set up as confessional um in terms i mean the irish constitution begins by invoking the holy trinity yeah. um and entire uh sections of a sort of state provision in education healthcare, things like that are, are turned over to the church um there are obvious benefits to that for the care of souls and everything, but there are attendant risks, and the attendant risks is, you know, as you as you often get in history in every country where, um, you know, state policy and state agency goes wrong and goes badly wrong, um, the church is is right there in the middle of it, and and this is you know this is what's happened uh, with these residential schools in Canada. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because on the one hand, if you read the Truth and Reconciliation Report's executive summary, which itself spans of a lot of pages. Um, and if you read, you know, some of the real scholarship about this, um, the church must be contrite for w- what she has done and what she has done is not insignificant. Um, or the institutions of the church must be contrite for those things. On, on the other hand, and this is where I think these things get so complicated, it's not that there's an other hand about the grave immorality of aspects of the residential school well, policy or praxis or the church's involvement in in them. But it is a challenge like that the church at the same time becomes sort of the focal point of the um, backlash against this in Canada, of a sort of protest movement against this in Canada, such that the church is perceived to be um, the sort of sole uh, actor. And there's a perception, I think, that the children who are, that these graves which are being confirmed by ground-penetrating radar, that the church was um, hiding the deaths of children. Um, now, in some cases she was. I mean, there was a, a real failure uh, of uh, administrators of these schools to notify parents of the way in which their children died and to make clear to them what had happened. Even there were times when funeral masses were celebrated and families weren't told about them. Um, there were serious kind of administrative failures and um, and a failure to sort of appreciate this, the sovereignty and significance of parents and families and um, and the church's responsibility to them, to be sure. Um, 
on the other hand, I think there's a perception that these children were serially sexually abused and then killed or serially sexually abused and then buried in order to cover the church's misdeeds. And while there was serial sexual abuse in some residential schools, um, I think the it's difficult when the church has real things to be contrite for and at the same time wishes to correct the record. And I, I never sort of know what the right navigation of that extremely sort of difficult um, tightrope is, you know? I mean, do you do you say, well, it does not seem like it's fruitful to say, well, um, the way you're painting, it was bad, but the way you're painting it, w- it, it was is worse than it was or it wasn't as bad as all. I mean, that does not seem fruitful or useful. At the same time, there are people who say, well, you know, the, the memories of people who were alive in this period are being disparaged in a way that is not a- accurate or does not accurately reflect what, what they had done. And I, I really don't know what the sort of right and Christian mode of responding to that kind of thing is. Uh, from a Christian perspective, it is certainly to to ask forgiveness where it is appropriate um, and, you know, not to, you know, sort of words of the psalm, not to hide one's sin. Uh, so there's that. I mean, in terms of what's the what's the right, as in most effective way for the church to show contrition and take, if you like, ownership of its share of a historical legacy that is very grim um, in many aspects, um, and how you do that best in a way that doesn't sort of have the church taking explicit or implicit culpability for systemic failures coming from the Canadian right. government and policy. Um, With which she was involved in, and bears a part of, uh, you sure. know, bears a piece of the responsibility, but not wholly and singularly. Right. But I mean, how you right. communicate that in a way that is effective or, you know, and if by effective you mean is respectful and well-received by the people who are the victims of this system, um, and at the same time doesn't appear to distance the church from places where she has legitimate responsibility to take, I, I don't think there is a good way. There's no good way. It's yeah. a, I mean, there's right. no good way out of a bad situation. That's, you right. know, if <laughs> the church was a participant in a system that was in many aspects horrific, um, the church was managing institutions that produced fields of child graves, you know, right. marked at the time, unmarked now, properly cared for, improperly cared for, whatever, there's, you know, that's, that's just not good. Um, and, and there does need to be a reckoning for that. But again, how you, how you do that in a way that is honest and sincere and at the same time doesn't appear to either take ownership of policy decisions or, you know, government action that was nothing to do with the church or at least outside of the church's control. Um, I, I don't know how you do that. I, I, you yeah. know, I don't, I don't know that there's any, there's any, um, good way, and I don't know that there's much of a lesson to to be learned from trying to find the right way of responding to a situation like this, other than don't get in those situations. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, in the the situation, I'm glad you talk about it in 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 terms of it being a situation of systemic injustice. I think it's actually exactly the kind of situ- the kind of um, system to which can be um, attrib- given the the label systematic racism or systemic racism, right? This is a sort of set Well, that's of what they were. I mean, you, you were saying are, yeah, right, to, exactly. to Canadianize, the function of these residents was to Canadianize these children. I mean, let's to, be clear. To whiteize. I was going to yeah. say, in the, in, the, in, the, in the policy of the time, it would have referred to as to civilize them. Right, 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 exactly, which, which is analogous to, to white eyes. Yes, I mean, exactly. You know, so, to, right, to, and to decimate their own culture yeah, and so do it. absolutely. And so, uh, you know, absolutely do not get, do not get involved <laughs> in those situations. Seems like a no-brainer, and yet, um, and yet here we are. Um, and the church, I think, must repent sincerely for, um, like, participation in a system and then for the, the individual 
um, sins of omission and commission that that go along with that and that um, compounded or extended that system. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time, again, there are people who say, yeah, but we have to keep the set the record straight and not to take responsibility for everything. And there there is a legal consideration here. I think there are people who are involved in the administration of the church who say, um, if we sort of carte blanche, accept every, accept every single way that the church is mischaracterized in this situation, we may open ourselves up to legal liability and those kinds of things. And of course, lawyers never want you to apologize. And at the, on the other side of the spectrum um, is the Lord who, you know, like a sheep led to the slaughter, opened not his mouth. And here we have something real to atone for. And if part of that atonement is being calumniated and, and mischaracterized and mis- and spoken ill of, um, to what extent is, is that what the church ought accept um, for the sake of, uh, of of repentance and atonement, and and I am asking those questions because I really don't know the answers, you know, and they raise I think real and legitimate I- issues. Yeah, no. especially as churches are burning, seemingly in response to this. Yeah, I I agree. Um, that, like I said, there's no good way out of a terrible situation. That's that's right. the nature of it. That's what makes it terrible. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have talked about that. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think the Pope in December will apologize. Um, it won't be on Canadian soil, uh, so it won't have met with the, um, uh, the recommendation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, you know, there's another place where there, there are people who are, who aim to defend the church by saying the Truth and Reconciliation Commission shouldn't get to sort of dictate, um, you know, the terms of the Pope's apology in that way. Um, and, you know, um, okay, I, you know, that is a perspective. On the other hand, there are people who are saying this is what has been asked for by the descendants and representatives of the survivors of this horrific thing and one ought to respond to it. The 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 challenge of sort of apologies um for horrific historical events is um it seems in a certain way that they um uh never satisfy. You know, the Pope made an apology in two thousand nine for for this uh, for aspects of what has happened here, and now there has been confirmation of these graves, and so there's an ex- you know there's a renewed expectation for an apology, which has been simmering all along since 2015. Um, there are people who say, well, the challenge of of the, these kind of public apologies is they never satisfy, and then there's the witness of John Paul II, who it seems like on every trip he went, apologized to people who he felt that needed an apology from the church, and uh, and so there again, uh, you know, it's not clear to me what the answer is. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there is one. I mean, this is this is the other benefit that governments like the Canadian government or, for example, the Irish government um, have over the church is the church remains constant. C- mm-hmm. Civil governments come and go. So a civil right. government can disown the legacy of previous civil governments and right. distance itself from it, you know, uh, reasonably easily, at least in terms of um, moral affiliation or legacy. But the the church is one. Yeah, you know. and the church has a different vision of history, right? So if you have a vision of history that says that, um, you know, history is a sort of ever, um, uh, uh, ever sort of ongoing um, struggle towards progress and an ever sort of ongoing um, clash between classes and an ever ongoing sort of expansion, that, that good history is never ongoing expansion of sort of a sphere of rights and therefore there are kind of good guys and bad guys in every, in every generation, Um it is easy enough to sort of uh, disavow all things which have come before you. Um, if you have a view of history which um, says that that um, the constant is sin um, and evil and is expressed and manifested in different ways in different generations, but nevertheless constant, um, it is it becomes harder to entirely disavow oneself from uh, a past in which one sees, as one sees in the present, um, 
both the presence of good and the presence of evil, and often in the same person. So that vision of history, I think, makes it harder to sort of immediately just sort of write off all that has come before, which it becomes an obstacle when that is the cultural expectation. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So that's what's happening and um, will continue to happen, no doubt, especially as uh, I just saw um, that uh, a co-cathedral, the co-cathedral in Yellowknife, Canada, uh, was uh, was burned last night. And um, I don't know if we had that in our story this no, morning, we but there's not. another, uh, there's another uh, of these fires. And then I just saw the National Post that um, the greatest ground penetrating radar has confirmed um, another uh, another place of, uh, of remains. And so, you know, as these two things are sort of going back and forth, um, I think this is only going to escalate in, in many ways. Yeah. And, and I don't think that I don't, I'm not convinced that the bishops have better answers to the questions that I'm raising than, than I do. And it should seem obvious from my stumbling around that I don't have good answers to this. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, let's talk about Hong Kong. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's not good JD. Oh, well then should we come back to Hong Kong and talk about something great? I I don't know what you I don't know what you have up your sleeve for great, but no, let's talk about Hong Kong. Okay, um, let's talk about Hong no, Kong. No, Hong Kong, it's not great. It's not going well. I was reading this morning a story, and in fact, there was video footage of a of a man apparently coming up and and stabbing a police officer in the center of town. Um, oh, <laughs> that's which is not good. And this is if you like the latest uh, sort of flashpoint between government authorities in Hong Kong and the citizenry, especially the pro-democracy, uh, pro-basic law, pro, uh, one country, two systems, um, section of the citizenry of Hong Kong. This is of course the, uh, anniversary week of not just the centenary of the Chinese communist party. Um, but also, um, is it the 25th? No, 97. So 24th anniversary of reunification um, with the mainland following the handover in 1997. Hong Kong was before 1997 a British protectorate. A British overseas territory. A British overseas territory, but only leased to the British in a 99-year lease, which ended in 97. That's correct. Um, So uh, the situation in Hong Kong is is not going well. It is tense. It is – there has been this uh, constant ratcheting up of – um, a, a stranglehold really on on civil liberties that had been guaranteed uh, on a sort of fifty year timeline at the time of the handover, <clears throat> guaranteeing the basic law of Hong Kong, guaranteeing certain things like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, that sort of thing. We've seen uh, in the last year, particularly the arrest of pro democracy advocates, um, the blacklisting and legal debarring of standing for office of pro democracy candidates. Um, the reform, quote unquote, of Hong Kong's legislature and election process to ensure uh, suitably patriotic candidates. Um, we've seen all of this is, of course, following the, the imposition of the national security law, and uh, which came into effect in, I think, one July of last year, um, which basically criminalized uh, criticism of the government that could make you um, liable for charges of sedition. Um, also, yeah, we've seen Apple Daily which is the newspaper that's owned by Jimmy Lai, who is the Catholic. Yeah, so kind of the, the big pro-democracy newspaper of Hong Kong. Well, the last pro-democracy. I mean, this is yeah. the thing is there used to be lots. Um, yeah, yeah. Apple mm-hmm. Daily. Uh, I mean, you know, it, so far as there is an analog of Apple Daily in the United States media landscape, it would be like the New York Post. Right. You know, it's a tabloid that, you know, a lot of it was sort of, you know, celebrity 
lifestyle yeah, tabloid coverage, tabloid, tabloid, tabloid yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. following um, the the protests in 2019 against uh, an extradition law that then was abandoned, but then led to the imposition of this national security law, um, it became the last openly pro-democracy publication in Hong Kong. Um, right. Jimmy Lai was arrested last year on... Uh, he went to prison basically on invented charges of... Um, you know, they, they questioned the, they called into question um, the lease of his media company's mm-hmm. building. And, you know, I mean, it was mm-hmm. it, it, a, a series of ridiculous things, which have, uh, in, in a sort of slow grinding way, led to Jimmy Light being in prison, um, led to the closure of his uh, media company, the, the freezing of assets of Apple Daily, the newspaper, which led to its sort of, you know, immediate decline and, and closure there was the in the week the paper closed last week the, i mean the, paper the closed, last table daily was the last, last friday was last friday in the sort of yeah. 10 days running up to that um hong kong police raided their newsroom and arrested us um, several editors and reporters they cited although they didn't list which ones 30 articles um including reported news stories and editorials as evidence mm-hmm. of sedition and collusion mm-hmm. with foreign powers basically mm-hmm. suggesting that covering the slow demise of civil liberties in Hong Kong amounted to soliciting um, sanctions on China by foreign powers. And yeah. so it looks like those journalists are going to be charged and will probably end up in prison. Well, so that's the situation in Hong Kong, which I don't want to go too deep, you know, deep into the weeds, because the, the, the interesting thing from our perspective is the response of the church, which, again, is one of these sort of uh, trade-off situations. So Archbishop Gallagher, who's essentially the church, the, the foreign minister of the Vatican Secretary of State, was asked about Hong Kong last week, and, and he was at a press conference about Lebanon, and he's talking about Lebanon and the situation of uh, the, the church's sort of intervention and in ongoing human rights issues in Lebanon, and he was asked, well, if the church is intervening and talking about Lebanon, how come she's not talking about Hong Kong, um, where there is an escalating human rights crisis. And uh, Archbishop Gallagher's answer was interesting. He said, well, I'm not convinced, and neither is anybody else who works here, that it would make uh, any bit of difference. And so we haven't, that it would do any good, that we can speak into this situation to affect um, any good. And uh, and, and, and it's an, a really interesting answer from the church, because it's a pragmatic answer. Um, and the church has a pragmatic reality. It's kind of similar to the China to the Canada thing in that there's this balance between sort of the pragmatic consideration about what the church might say, and then there's a prophetic consideration about what the church might say. And uh, and um, you know when the church thinks about her place in Hong Kong, she thinks about keeping parishes open and keeping institutions open and these kinds of things. But you know she must also think about what the witness of the gospel demands of her, what the proclamation of the truth demands of her, and. Um, and that is always a tension, but it's interesting to hear an answer that seems to land so squarely on one instead of the other, or to at least give an indication of sort of the hermeneutic of judgment um, uh, being effectiveness. Um, it's especially interesting because I don't, I'm not sure that sort of the Christian eff- uh, hermeneutic of judgment about these things always is effectiveness, or that that's kind of the model of the of the gospel. At the same time, the church has to make a judgment about these things. It, it does. Um, and of course, the necessary background to all of this is the Vatican-China deal, and right. the appointment of bishops on the mainland. Uh, and, you know, the question about Hong Kong that Archbishop Gallagher faced was interesting, but also sort of, you know, uh, it was beside the real elephant in the room in terms of Vatican democracy, which is there is a genocide, an actual real millions of genocide, people involved yeah. genocide going on in China right now amongst right. the Uyghur mm-hmm. population. And the Holy See has said exactly nothing about this, um, yeah. which is, you know, it. It, it is a stain on its diplomatic credibility 
that yeah. you know there is it, the Holy See has sovereign status, maintains a diplomatic corps, maintains all of these things to be able to speak as the voice of Christ in the diplomatic sphere, and on the greatest, most systematic, atrocious human rights crisis of the 21st century, um, it has nothing to say. And it has nothing right. to say because of a diplomatic calculus saying, well, we think we can, you know, get it. We're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, anyway. We're not going to get anywhere anyway. And we might, so you know, wipes the apple cart. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm, I mean, what I think is really funny about this is it, it's basically the, a separation of church and state in the Holy mm-hmm. See that they said, yeah. well, you know, we're the diplomatic, we're just going to do diplomacy. We aren't going to do evangelization. We're not really, you know, right. And, and I find this fascinating. I also think on a purely practical level, it, it's just stupid. It's just the wrong decision. It's just a bad idea. It's, you know, Archbishop Gallagher said, well, we're not going to talk about this because, you know, nothing we say is going to, is going to make any difference anyway. And then in the same interview, in the same, you know, doing the same press panel, he followed up by saying, you know, there was sort of laughter in the room when he said this, like, why aren't we talking about Hong Kong? Cause they're not going to listen to us. So why should we talk about Hong Kong? Who cares? Ha ah. yeah. And he said, then yeah. he sort of, you know, went, Oh, I should probably say something serious. So then, I mean, you can see sort of, he you know, stops laughing and leans forward and goes, but we're, we're very hopeful. The new Bishop there is going to do a lot of good work. Is he right. bollocks? How is the right. new Bishop of Hong Kong supposed to, as he said in his first press conference, uh, following the announcement of his appointment, he said that in his religious freedom is, vitally important. It's a vitally important consideration in general, and certainly in Hong Kong and in the Diocese of Hong Kong. And he's going to have to remind um, government officials of this in, you know, in his dialogues with them. How, what kind of a hearing is the new Bishop of Hong Kong going to get from local authorities if the Vatican's senior diplomat is just, well, nothing we say is going to make any difference anyway. Right. I mean, who is yeah. he meant to be speaking with? Who does he, who do they imagine um, Father Chow, who will be Bishop Chow, in December is going to have at his back when he's having these conversations right. with Hong Kong authorities. Damn sure not the exactly. Vatican. They've made that perfectly clear. Yeah, and if he clear. says this is where the church is on this or this is what we expect, you know, out of religious freedom and he thinks that you know, the Holy See is not going to be – and China thinks the Holy See is not going to be with him, then he's sort of out uh, sawing himself off a, off a limb. Well, it's not that the Chinese are going to think that. They're going to know it. They've said it in yeah, terms. they're going to know that. It's right. a fact. In both of these cases that we're talking about, Ed, you know, you, you pointed something out that's very true and it's um, the, the the limitation, the imposition on the church's freedom that comes from sort of institutional entanglement and acquiesce, uh, uh, you know, and acquiescence and, and collaboration, right? So, um, you know, the church must live in the world. Um, but at the same time, I think we're going to see escalating um, circumstances and more, more, ever more frequent circumstances in which um, entanglement with by virtue of a concordat with a foreign government compromises the church's ability to speak prophetically. Um, Entanglement um, sort of with institutional contracts with the government compromises the church's ability to uh, uh, even atone for her own sins clearly enough and um, and gets her involved in things that she otherwise would not get involved in from the beginning. Um, And, you know, it was interesting to talk to uh, Lipinski, Congressman Lipinski last week, who pointed out, you know, that the church's Entanglement in kind of various kinds of charitable contracts with the with the federal government is going to ever more impose um, restrictions on the church's ability to speak prophetically uh, in, about various issues here in the U.S. There is this sort of burgeoning and growing r- reality in which the church's sort of collaboration with um, secular institutions or entanglement with secular secular institutions is manifestly um, a threat or compromise to her ability to um, freely and um, in an unfettered way proclaim. Um, the gospel and speak the truth. Well, yeah. And I mean, let's be clear. That's why the church has all of these things in the first place. I mean, right. this is something that I was talking right. about in um, in the canon law class that I'm teaching at the moment. Uh, the other day I was telling some students that you know, the way you, the way the church, you perceive the church's 
constitutive law is that it's always in service of her mission, that everything the church right. does, every structure the church has, every mechanism the church creates is in service to the salvation of souls, that the prophetic witness of the church and the great mission is the church's animating dynamic. It is the only yeah. thing that matters. It is the soul of the church's existence. And so everything bends and serves towards that. So if you yeah. end up in a situation where, as Archbishop Gallagher seems to think, the church says, well, you know, for diplomatic reasons, we're not going to comment on this because it would, you know, if we were too prophetic, if we announced the truth of human dignity, freedom and life into the genocide of the Uyghurs, well, that would create diplomatic problems. Like, But the whole reason the church has diplomatic sovereignty, the whole reason the Holy See is a sovereign international, a sovereign diplomatic entity under international law is so that it can speak about these issues free yeah. from the concern of pressures of civil governments. That what's China right. going to do? Put a trade embargo on the Vatican? No. Right. The, you know, that's why. And so if the church is suddenly unable to announce the gospel because of these civil attacks, the cart has been put before the horse. The tail is wagging the dog. The whole thing is backwards. That all of this, the whole reason the Holy See has ambassadors, has nuncios, has all of these things is to advance the evangelization. And you don't get that if, and this is something Cardinal Zen said, um, I, I guess, uh, not quite a year ago, but, you know, I was talking to him once and he said, there will come a time when the Chinese Communist Party will fall. The Chinese Communist Party is not going to have a bicentenary that there, you know, yeah. they will, it will come crashing down and there will be a discussion about the new China, about what happens next. And Cardinal Zen said, the church will not be welcome at the table because it will be seen as complicit in this regime. And that yeah. is the problem. You think yeah. the church is having tying itself in knots trying to deal with these residential schools in Canada. What is it going to have to say at the end of the right. communist regime in China when there's a great reckoning and they uncover that, you know, it turns out it's not just the Uyghurs who are being forced into concentration camps, being forced into abortions, being forcibly sterilized, being systematically tortured and raped, but that this is happening in four other provinces that we don't even know of to how many millions of people we aren't sure. And what is right. what is the church's legacy in all this going to be? Well, we had a diplomatic agreement to allow them to sort of help us appoint bishops. How is that going to play? And, you know, the, the, the reason for that, you know, to, to go back to sort of what do they want, why do we have ambassadors and all of these uh, these things, um, it, it, it is in a certain way to um, do as much as can be done to ensure the freedom of the church to live her mission and um, to stave off the persecution of the China uh, uh, of the church. Because you asked, I, you asked, what is the church going, China going to do to the church? Well, China is going to persecute the church, right? I mean, if the church speaks out, if, if curates of the Holy See speak out about um, various human rights abuses in China, for example, what's going to happen is that um, China is going to persecute the church. And there is a desire, the reason why we have those institutional protections that you talked about, is there's a desire to protect the church in as much as is possible from persecution. Um, the problem becomes when um, Christian persecution becomes perceived to be um, a suffering to be avoided at all costs. Um, when it becomes sort of a higher good than integrity and fidelity to truth, um, that is when, you know, institutional self-preservation um, becomes uh, an impediment uh, to, to, to the church's freedom uh, rather than, a, rather than a, an aid to it. Okay, sure, I, I agree with that. But here's the thing. The situation in China is such under the terms, I don't, okay, I shouldn't say under the terms because I don't know the exact terms, but the situation in China now while we have the Vatican China deal in place, is not that the Chinese government isn't persecuting the church. The church is being persecuted in China. If you are a Catholic bishop or yes, priest yes, who right, refuses right. to register with the Chinese Communist Party and acknowledge the sovereignty of the Communist Party over the church in China, you will be arrested. You will be detained. Yeah. You will be hunted 
You will be turned out of your house. You will have your church closed. The church is already being persecuted in China. So it's not yeah, that yeah, we're it's avoiding true. it. I mean, it's true. I mean, the, 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 it, you're right. I mean, it, I'm, uh, rightly, rightly pointed out. Um, the, what the Holy See would say is that actually the China deal, the existence of the China deal is to ensure the unity of the church so you don't have a schism in the church. But again, <laughs> this comes back to the conversation that we've been having about Eucharistic coherence, I suppose. Again, the, um, unity can't sort of be predicated on, on compromise, right? I mean, uh, compromise on things which, do, which don't matter fundamentally, sure, but um, compromise of the church's ability to engage in prophetic proclamation of the gospel, no, unity can't be sort of predicated on compromise of the things which are fundamentally true. Now, is there times when one must be prudent to preserve unity? To be sure. Is there a time when one must be, you know, reserved you know, reserve to the point of, um, of great frustration to preserve unity? Sure. But there must always be this evaluation of whether or not the, the, these external goals beyond um, living in accord with the truth um, are compromising the church's freedom to be um, who, who it is that she ought to be. Yeah. And I mean, again, yeah. I, I want to be absolutely clear about one thing. I am not saying the Holy See should be issuing, you know, a, a right. sort of systematic critique of the political situation in Hong Kong. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. Yeah. You know, that the situation in Hong Kong, even within the church, even within Catholics in the Diocese of Hong Kong, is extremely complicated, is extremely diverse, that this is not, there's not a unified quote-unquote Catholic position against the Chinese mainland government or in favor of democracy or anything. On the contrary, the Diocese of Hong Kong, Catholics in Hong Kong broadly reflect similar divergence of opinion on the political situation in, mm -hmm. in society at large. I'm not saying the church needs to pick political sides, but I am saying that when there is a problem that, for example, leads to Catholic schools being told you have to promote the correct and approved forms of patriotism in the classroom, or you have, as we had the apostolic administrator, Cardinal um, John Tong Hong, last year, telling priests that they needed to not touch on, you know, not not preach homilies that, you know, could be construed as, you know, touching politically sensitive or controversial right. issues. I mean, that that's different. That's touching the, the fundamental freedom of the church to engage in yeah. things that she claims is her sovereign right, which is to participate right. in the education of children in the Christian faith and to announce the gospel. So, I, again, yeah. I'm not suggesting the church needs to be, you know, rolling up its sleeves and, and being a firm advocate for democracy in Hong Kong. No, I don't believe the church should have a dog in the fight of whether democracy is a good or bad form of government at all. Right, right. Because, you know, and this dates back to what popes have said for over a century and a half now, you know, that different forms of government can be more or less apt and more or less just at, according to the circumstances of time or place. So I'm not saying that. I am saying that the church cannot surrender her freedom to announce the truth about life and human dignity and the gospel in the face of, right. for example, systematic genocide. Right. You, you can't close that off because of a diplomatic consideration. And if you do, again, you've separated church and state in the Holy See, which is, I, I mean, it, it's so mind-blowingly crazy that that's where we've come to. I don't, I, I, yeah, it blows and, my mind. And we have the witness. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the way in which it is known that there were collaborators in both the Catholic and Orthodox Church behind the Iron Curtain, um, it, it's known that there were Catholic collaborators, ecclesiastical hierarchs who um, who aided the regime in, in, because they believed that they were securing the um, sort of institutions of the church or the security of the church. And so they collaborated in all kinds of ways, including uh, telling on people who were working to undermine the regime and things like that. And, and, and that's all that's true as well uh, in the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, this is known. Um, you have to juxtapose that that reality that there uh, the, the 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 impulse to collaborate with the regime for the sake of institutional preservation, which is not in itself a bad thing, um, with the impulse of John Paul II with regard to the Iron Curtain, which was to sort of um, 
in a clever way, not in an imprudent way, not in a way that sort of, um, you know, uh, went and, and uh, lit fire to uh, to anything but the but the hearts of people, but to go and to say, you're not who they say you are, and um, uh, free, you're made uh, for freedom, um, Christian freedom, and um, and and you have a right. You know, freedom is your baptismal birthright, and that's what this means. And again, that's not expressly uh, an endorsement of of, a, of particular political apparatus. Um, it, it's an endorsement of the goods of the human person. And to the extent that that's compromised, to the extent that there's a fear of saying, um, y- you are made with a dignity that should not. Uh, uh, that that should not end in uh, coercive abor- abortions and contraception, um, or uh, you know, coercive internment and re-education, indoctrination. Um, to the extent that we don't think that we can say that, um, you are made with a dignity by which you um, can make judgments and express them. To the extent that we don't think we can say that, I think we have to examine kind of what the cost of um, of pragmatic considerations really is. Can we come back to apologies for a minute? Okay. So I wanted to talk more. I was hoping you would say more about apologies. I, I've just been thinking a lot about this, this expectation of uh, uh, of apologies and, and sort of the making of apologies and the sort of ritual public making of apologies and the expectation of apologies. Because one of the things that strikes me as we talk about apologies in Canada is that we have a culture uh, that, that expects apologies in the face of, um, you know, again, genuine injustice, but um, has very – ambiguous sense of what ought to happen subsequent to an apology. I mean, we have a, a sort of expectation of a culture of apologies, but not a culture of of a, a forgiveness or reconciliation. I was wondering, okay, so what happens after, what has happened thus far and what happens after, for example, the Pope apologized? It seems to me that the sort of expected sort of cultural response to an apology is that one be um, sufficiently chastened as to sort of sit in the corner and not open one's mouth again, that an apology is not generally regarded as a precedent of uh, as a precedent for forgiveness and reintegration, but rather an apology is often culturally sort of regarded as um, a, a, a preliminary chastening before sort of having the good sense to go away. And uh, and I, I don't think that has to factor into the consideration of um, making a sincere apology, but it does factor into sort of what the reasonable expectations are of, of what the church can can reasonably do in response to her own historical acts of injustice and grave sin. I think that's that's true. I I, I will be honest. I'm not not being a member of uh, any demographic that has suffered institutional yep. injustice. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I neither I nor anyone in my family went to either the residential schools in Canada or the Magdalen laundries in Ireland. Um, yeah, nor I. I mean, so I recognize the place from which I'm saying. Sure, this. but I, I guess what I'm saying is, I having said that, I, I understand the desire for uh, institutional apologies in in communities that have suffered in this way, and the because it's not so much, I, at least as I've understood it, not just the apology, but with the apology comes an acknowledgement of what has been denied before, and so it's wow. it's the you know it, it's in effect hearing from the institution, no, you're not crazy, this happened. Yeah, and right. that yeah, I think is important. Of experience. I mean, yeah, it, it institutional apologies as expressions of genuine contrition. I I set very little store by myself. Um, I'm not sure what good they do. I think with good reason. Very often, an institutional apology is followed by the person receiving the apology saying, "Well, sorry is not good enough. Sorry doesn't change anything." And I think that's true. Right. I mean, my right. idea of an institutional apology in my head, what I always think of is when I used to have to get the train out of Waterloo Station every night in London going home. The, it would inevitably be delayed because Southwest Trains is perhaps the most incompetent and uh, negligent 
rail organization the world has ever known. But what they would do when they inevitably delayed or canceled the train is a robot voice would come over the station and say, I'm very sorry to announce, and then announce the slew of cancellations and delay. And then the robot would say, I'm please accept my apologies for the inconvenience. It's like, well, it's not an apology because it comes from no one. It's coming from a robot. Mm -hmm. It's coming from an institution. What the company Southwest trains is apologizing to me because I'm going to be two hours late home. Like, right. And not only is it coming from no one, it's going to, it's no, going one. to no one. It's not yeah. an apology to Ed. It's sort of amorphously, we are putting our regret out into the void. Exactly. And, you yeah. know, a, an apology that comes from no one in particular and is addressed to no one in particular is no apology at all. Yeah. And and so I, I, I question the utility at a moral level of institutional apologies. I, you know, I, I, I accept at the same time, people want them nonetheless, and I understand why they do. Uh, and I also, you know, what's the alternative? The alternative, right. if you're if if what's really at issue is the the owning up to the historical realities, and the um, and the acknowledgement that wrong was done, you either are left with two options: either an institutional apology, or the direction of individual blame at someone who is individually yeah. to blame. Yeah. And you know, so what's the what's the you know what's the alternative to, for example, in the case of the residential schools in Canada, what's the alternative to uh, an institutional apology by the church? Well, for the church as an institution, you know, in the same way that the Canadian government is kind of sort of standing to one side and saying, yes, the Catholic Church should apologize for this. Um, what what could the church do? The church can either apologize or the church can step back and say, well, we're not apologizing, but absolutely they're owed an apology by this group of people who ran this school in this period of time, yeah. and here are their names. You know, I I don't know that that satisfies anyone anymore, though. I, it just seems to me that an apology must be given to a, a community or an individual capable of receiving it for it to have any meaning. And, and what I mean by that is that it seems to me the best sort of potential of a public apology is one which is a which is an exercise in sort of um, invitation, perhaps with a modeling component. So um, the Pope wishes to make an apology for the historic acts of injustice and grave and serious abuse that the Church has committed in residential schools in China and for their complicity in the government's participation. It seems to me that if the Pope, and, and I think there's a way in which this has been done um, by in sort of visits with sexual abuse victims in various countries where Popes have visited, the Pope meets with, with uh, representatives in those of those groups and, and says to them, um, I apologize to you and to all other uh, victims and those who have been impacted by this, and I ask your forgiveness. And then the m- modeling might come if a person extends his personal forgiveness. I don't think anyone can forgive on behalf of others because forgiveness is an interior act. Well, you so can't then, apologize um, on behalf of others and you can't forgive on behalf of others. You can't apologize on behalf of others and you can't forgive on behalf of others. Now, as the representative of an institution, I think you can apologize for the historical or even current um, um, uh, failings of the institution. Um uh, but not on behalf of sort of individuals in the institution because they may, in fact, not be sorry, right? Um, uh, um, but I think forgiveness is a personal thing. And so it's reasonable, I think, to for one person who receives this apology to say, you know, I forgive you and I hope that others will. But uh, each person can only come to forgiveness of, of their own, you know, uh, on their own. Um, and uh, and that I think that has to be appreciated in the context that an, a, a public apology is actually – um, an apology from an individual uh, to an aggregate of individuals, each of whom must make some um, personal choice about how to respond. Well, I mean, but this is exactly what there will be scope for in December when these these three right. representative yeah. groups will go to the Vatican and, and right. yeah. meet with the Pope. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully there will be something there. I, I imagine it will be some pretty choppy water between now and December, although. Yeah. I think so. And and we've asked, you know, what does reconciliation look like? And I think that has to continue to be asked. Because I don't know about you, Ed, but when I apologize to Mrs. Flynn, um, I, I have to both apologize to Mrs. Flynn and also sort of give some indication of 
what might be um, different in my comportment, disposition, or um, action in the future. Um, otherwise, it, it can ring hollow, right? So I'm sorry, and sort of here's what I'll do the next time this comes up, or here's what I'll do to make it right. It's different from just, I'm sorry, okay? Sorry is the hardest word in our house. Um, <laughs> okay. Not in terms of asking each other forgiveness, but the problem is my wife is English. And, um, and so yeah. she uses sorry sort of as punctuation. Right, you know, right. Sorry can mean everything from putting a space between two clauses in a sentence to, you know, hello to, oh, you just did something unforgivable. So I will yeah. say sorry to you as a, as yeah. a sort of rhetorical device. Um, sorry can also mean, you know, variously sought off, um, you know, dinner's ready, things like that. You know, so it, it, it's a fraught, it's a fraught term in our house. Um but no, it, it is necessary. I mean, but this is all, this is the other thing is apologies. Ironically, I think apologies carry more weight the more often they're given. That if you're if you're in the habit of regularly seeking forgiveness, yeah, then right. it's much easier to demonstrate a pattern of proper follow through on an apology. That you know, it, it, it's like in the it, it's like in the sacrament of penance. That it's not enough to go and say. Uh, yeah, I did this, and I regret doing it. You have to have the intention to amend your ways. <laughs> yeah, you ha- right. Exactly. You have to have a resolution not to do it again, and right. and that is not something that is just an act of will. It's it's that, but it's also something you have to habituate yourself to. It's something yeah. that comes with, like all virtue, um, it comes through the doing and through the repetition. So yeah. I, I think there is there is that too, you know, to to hope to see come out of this. Yeah. Okay, what are you doing on the 4th of July? Um, well, wind and weather permitting, I'm hoping to be with my family, and I hope to grill my own body weight in meat, um, preferably beef. It's going to be a different 4th of, uh, 4th of July for me. is I, I tend to go whole hog. Mm-hmm. Um, you do? I can hardly believe yeah, it. Yeah, uh, literally and metaphorically, because... Well, I lived for so long, as you never delight in, as you never tire in reminding people, I have spent most of my life, certainly most of my adult life, in in the UK. Um, You're English. I would, uh, anyway, and they have they have the Fourth of no, July. No, it is not. It is not publicly observed over there's a holiday. Although when well, I was, what comes after Ed, what comes after the third of July? Well, um, just the next day, <laughs> usually <laughs> a Tuesday. <laughs> um, Anyway, when I was <laughs> usually a Tuesday, I uh, when I was working in the Houses of Parliament, I sort of carved out for myself my own little way of honoring the Fourth of July, which is I would start drinking in the Sport and Social, which is one of the the staff pubs on the on the Palace of Westminster premises. I'd allow myself to start drinking at sort of two or three in the afternoon, and then I'd finish up the day on the members' terrace, um, and I'd throw tea bags into the Thames and tell MPs as they walked past me not to tread on me. And, you know, some of them... I bet they love that. Did they even get some it? Of the, oh, the, some of them who knew me understood what I was doing and thought it was funny. My my then employer thought I was absolutely cracked. Um, oh, I can't believe that. Some of the other that. members wow. thought I... Some of the other... One, on one occasion, um, Palace Security came to me and to ascertain whether I was being drunk and disorderly. Um, and we reached a resolution in which I was not considered to be drunk and disorderly. At least, that's good. At least for the purposes of yeah. Palace Security. Um, yeah. So that's how I used to have to celebrate the 4th of July. And now that I can wear silly shorts and, and grill meats and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to be making a trip across the state line to Pennsylvania where you can buy fireworks of the kind that I would consider ordinance rather yeah, than entertainment. Yeah. But they, they allow you yeah. to buy them at a very reasonable price. So I'm probably going to be stocking up on that. Great. Um 
Yeah. Uh, cool. You know what else? Okay, is, you know what else happens on the Fourth of July, JD? What? It's our anniversary. It is. It is. It is. It is our anniversary. As long as we've got each other, we got the world spinning right in our hands, Eddie, you and me. I don't know the rest of the song, that un- but that's that a, we sang that song in our opening thing. It will be six months of the pillar, is what you're saying. It will Ed. be six months of the pillar, JD, and and I think we've done all right. But I, 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 how hard do you imagine we've worked in the last six months? Okay, I here's what I would say about that. I, you know, I think I, I think that the first year of launching a new thing is a year of intense work, and I. I'm deeply satisfied by our work, but it is a lot of work. I it mean, is a lot working, of work, but I, I don't mean – I wasn't saying, you know, tell us how hard at it you are. I meant oh. how hard – put a number on it. How hard do you think we've worked in the last six months? How many How many stories, how many posts do you imagine? PillarCatholic.com. Well, how, many how many things do I think we've published? Yeah. Uh, around uh, – how many things do I think we've published? Uh, around uh, 200? We actually, you're 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 not far off. Um, I know our business, you, buddy. You do. Uh, <laughs> in fact, as of as of this moment, when we are, how many things have we published? Well, we have we have published uh, at this very second, as we record, two hundred and forty-two. Um, hey, that's great. Two hundred and forty-two posts. Two hundred and forty-two news reports, n- analyses, explainers, interviews. Exactly. Uh, but then you have to add to that the fifty newsletters we've also sent around yeah yeah so mm-hmm. you know knocking on the door of 300 basically yeah hey that's a great congratulations my well, friend well yeah i mean you know i i'm not blowing our horn here i'm just saying i if you told me that those were the numbers we would have put up six months ago i'd have said that was ambitious uh, yeah well we have we have done it and uh, i'm proud of you and we've got a lot more to come in the next six months and a lot of things a lot of areas where we really want to grow uh, i want to grow in many many ways in terms of our international coverage our china coverage and and other things and um and our ability to cover – I talked about this in the newsletter this week, so if you read the newsletter, you already heard me say this. But I, I really want to grow in our international coverage and building a better network of international correspondence. And then I, I really want to grow sort of in our subject area expert coverage. I think we cover very well sort of the hierarchical constitution of the church. Um, I'd like to cover other institutions of the church with the same level of expertise. I'd like to cover um, – you know, cath- there are a lot of stories in Catholic healthcare, and um, it's really a goal of mine to be able for, for us to be able to cover them. Well, and a lot of serious issues in Catholic healthcare to be looked at. There are a lot of issues in Catholic education and higher education to be looked at and to be treated intelligently. And I'd really like for us to be able to do that. Um, and and then to be able to um, better cover like the stories of uh, people who are living the Christian life. I mean, I really hope that we can grow to and sort of better covering just the the the, the, the lives of believers. Um, and the way in which they exercise kind of the, the the mission of the gospel. So those are some goals that I have and others too, but yeah. Yeah, it's going well. But I the reason I brought all this up is I wanted to take the opportunity on our twenty seventh podcast, uh if you're if you're counting those two, um, to say thank you to everyone who is a, a subscriber. And I'm aware that the yeah. the in the in the Venn diagram of podcast listeners and subscribers to the pillar, it's it's probably pretty darn close to a circle. Um, at least for many of them, uh, and to say thank you very much because we only get to do this crazy fun stuff because people yeah. are subscribing and supporting us. And you know, thank you for yeah. the last six months is basically what I wanted. Yeah, to Yeah, if you about. listen to this show and you um, think it's worth paying for and you pay for it, thank you. If you listen to this show and you think it's worth paying for it and you don't pay for it because you haven't like done it yet, that's my case. Often I like I'm a consumer of some content and I'm like I should pay for this and then I just don't get around to it. 
um, uh, we would, I suppose we would invite you to make our six month uh, moment, uh, uh, a moment to, uh, to subscribe to what we do at the pillar on the podcast and, um, in print as it were. Um, and, uh, you can do that at pillarcatholic.com, but really, I mean, I, I'm edified, uh, and deeply grateful by the, uh, by the pe- number of people who, uh, think that what we're doing, uh, the news that we're reporting and investigating is worth paying for. So thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. I do not have a game. Do you have a game for this uh, holiday weekend? I do have a game. So Ed, because it's the 4th of July, um, on Sunday, we are going to play Fourth of July. Good, better, best. The way Good, Better, Best works, or worse, worse, worse greater or call lesser. It? Greater or lesser. We're going to play Greater or Lesser. And the way Greater or Lesser works on this show is that I'm going to give Ed a list of three things. These are these things are thematically aligned by virtue of the Fourth of July and Fourth of July celebrations. I'm going to give Ed three sort of thematically connected things, and he's going to say that one is greater than the other, is greater than than another, or one is. Worse than another is worse than another. So he will be ranking them categorically, as it were, um, either according to their goodness or their badness. And again, this is 4th of July, greater or lesser. Ed Condon, are you ready? I am. Okay. Uh, Fireworks, uh, firecrackers, and campfires. Uh, Campfires are superior to fireworks, which are superior to firecrackers. Um, The general premise when you're dealing with explosives is bigger is better, but a campfire offers the prospect of also cooking on it, grilling meat, roasting things, so that wins out. I'm I'm glad you said that, and it's a great segue into my next uh, greater or lesser. Hot dogs, brats, or Italian sausage? Um, brats are superior to Italian sausage are superior to hot dogs. Well, you've got some of that right and some of that wrong. Moving Hot forward. dogs are fine, but they're essentially, it's, hot dogs are fine. And don't be wrong, I'm from Chicago. I like a good hot dog. But the thing that makes a Chicago hot dog great is, yes, the hot dogs are of a superior quality to everywhere else in the country. Um, but you're getting all the stuff with it. That it's a, yes. it's also a, it's if you like meat filler for the delivery of delivery mechanism for all the other stuff. Whereas a bratwurst is a thing of lovely beauty in itself. Italian, uh, I don't like fennel seed to be honest. So I don't like Italian sausage. Oh, I, I love like fennel seed. seed. I, no, 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 no. I'm, oh, it's I, the worst. My, the, my, I make my own barbecue rub, obviously, and that involves. Um, I have a cast iron skillet and I toast the the seeds of various things in it, and then I hand grind them. Um, and fennel seeds are definitely going in that. It's it's a great sweet aromatic. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, you're going to be a dad soon. So we did uh, fireworks, firecrackers, and campfires. Now we're going to do the junior version of that because you're going to be a dad soon. Um, so, um, Ed, do you know what snaps are? Are those the things that, that you, you know, throw at the ground? Yeah, that, you, you yeah. throw them on the ground and they snap yeah. or pop or whatever. I think sure. they have a little – I don't think it's gunpowder, but they have a little explosive, explosive yeah. powder or something. Okay. So snaps, sparklers, and cap guns. Well. Cap guns are superior to snaps, are superior to sparklers. Good. Well done. Correct. You are right about that. Okay, Ed. Um, this, I suppose, is a question about um, watching uh, the fireworks. Um, these are three places where I have been known to watch the fireworks in my day. Um, uh, a park, uh, the beach, or a boat? Um, boat is greater than beach is greater than park. That is true. I have a story about fireworks on a boat if you're interested in it. I'd be delighted. I mean, for my own person, I, w- I hopefully will be watching um, the fireworks this 4th of July, uh, either from a boat or from the beach at a at a lake. Um, growing up, when I was a child in Chicago, we would always go to the beach uh, at Lake Michigan because the fireworks were all over the lake. Um, parks are fine, I guess, if you don't have access to water. When I was a kid, we used to go to a lake in eastern uh, Pennsylvania, a lake called Lake Juan Pawpack, which you may have heard of if you watch The Office, because one time they had a 
thing about Lake Wampapak in the office. But anyhow, we used to go to my uncle's lake house on Lake Wampapak, and um, my uncle had a boat. It was a big lake. It was a flooded reservoir that was a, uh, I think, for the it was a flooded valley that was for the sake of hydroelectric power generation. And uh, some of the little hills in the valley had become, it was a big lake. I think the largest man-made lake in Pennsylvania or something like that. Anyhow, um, some of the, uh, yes, it was that. Some of the hills inside the valley had become little islands. So there were a few islands in the lake. And again, it's a big lake. So um, from one of the islands did the Paul and, Wall and Paw Pack Power District set off their fireworks. And so you could watch them from the beach in front of your lake house or you could take your boat near the island and watch them there. And one year we did the boat thing with my uncle's boat. And um, the fireworks were being lit off. And I was, I don't know, I was probably nine and my little sister was probably seven. And my older sister uh, was probably uh, 13, but she wasn't there because she was 13. So she was probably, I don't know, at a Blossom convention or something. Um, and uh, and so uh, they're lighting off the fireworks and then something must have gone wrong because suddenly there was a great blaze and suddenly the entire island was ablaze. And... Uh, there, there were sort of fire and police boats instructing everyone to get back and to get out their fire extinguishers. And it was at that moment that my uncle admitted to my mom that the fire extinguisher on his boat was didn't work because he had used it to put out a fire. At a, my uncle was a, was a crazy, wild and crazy guy in those wild and crazy guy in those days. He admitted that he had used it to put out a fire at a kegger that he had had earlier that summer on another. Um, island and so there was no fire extinguisher and we were little and the boats were sort of all jamming into each other to get out and uh, my uncle and uh, my mom uh, got in a big fight about sort of what it meant to be responsible with children and uh, we just sort of sat on the front of the boat and watched an island burn which I thought was awesome and subsequently we got ice cream so it was a sweet sweet fourth of July from my perspective sounds like a good night out yeah I mean in, in retrospect you know environmental degradation or whatever but as a kid it was awesome i don't think you get to claim environmental degradation on an island that is basically a hill that was created by the damming of a water source to create a man-made lake i think i think really the die is cast at that point you can burn the island down for fun and giggles i think think it's fine okay ed uh since we have a campfire s'mores uh, this is campfire cooking food so one of these things is from another category but what can you do s'mores hot dogs or dutch oven cobbler things to cook at a campfire hmm um, I'm going to say hot dogs, Dutch oven cobbler, s'mores. And I, in my heart, I'd want to say Dutch oven, Dutch oven cobbler first, just because I love my Dutch oven. I use mm-hmm. it all the time. Anytime you build a fire, it's always great to crack one out. But I'm afraid meat will always win out over everything else. So hot dogs come top, Dutch even, oven cobbler. Even hot dog. I mean, that's kind of meat is a tricky Okay. No, if it's if it's a good Chicago hot dog, it will it'll oh, right. it'll be a hundred percent all beef. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, and um, s'mores they don't do anything for me. I mean, when I was a kid, the joy of s'mores was basically you could set the thing on fire. Yeah. Um, and what we discovered uh, very early in my childhood was, yes, yeah, s'mores are fine and dandy, but since you got the fire going and you have the sticks, if you actually put pine cones on the end of the sticks yeah. and stuck them in the fire, then you had you know Indiana Jones style torch, and that was yeah. way more interesting than a couple of graham crackers. That's the way to do it. All right, my friend. Things to read aloud at a 4th of July celebration, the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, or the presidential speech from the 1996 classic Independence Day? Um, Definitely Independence Day presidential speech. Definitely top of the list. Uh, The Gettysburg Address would come second and the Declaration of Independence third. You got it right. Good. If you can actually hold an audience to listen to the Declaration of Independence, yeah, you're having a true. radically different Fourth of July to me. 
Indeed. Okay, Ed, this is a list of second-tier founding fathers. Uh, I didn't take the big ones. I took some second-tier founding fathers, and you can rank them. The Marquis de Lafayette, Aaron Burr, and the brewmeister himself, Sam Adams. Ah, okay. So, Aaron Burr comes out on top because he shot Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) National hero. Oh, gosh. Okay. (laughs) Second is is Mr. Adams. I am a big fan of his beer. Um, And third is definitely the foppish in effect Marquis de Lafayette. Oh, and you're right about Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Good. Patriotic music to listen to on the 4th of July. John Phillips, Souza, Bruce Springsteen, and Francis Scott Key. Uh, Francis Scott Key. Is better uh, than or worse than? Which Is better than. Okay. Souza is better than Bruce Springsteen. I hate Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, well, you're on the right. Uh, Bruce Springsteen right is a is a poser, a fraud, a phony. He has said so himself that he has never done a blue collar day's work in his life. This man is an absolute okay. All right, charlatan. Next thing. Okay, so uh, next thing, buddy. I know you can go there, but okay, uh, all American beers, and by which I mean you have to rate the things that I'm giving you because these are indeed American beers: Bud, Bud Light, and Bud Chilada. I am unfamiliar with Bud Chilada. Please say Are you more. really? Yes, I've never heard of this. Do you know what Clamato is? No. R- really? Okay, Clamato... Oh, gosh. Clamato is, um, is, uh, is a combination, a, a, a wonderfully savory combination of, uh, of uh, tomato juice and clam juice with um, some, like, MSG sprinkled in there. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. And Dear God! <laughs> what you do with Clamato is uh, what you do with Clamato is you mix it uh, with a light beer and you drink it down for breakfast. And a few years ago, Budweiser started selling this concoction, which is a longstanding American tradition, actually, of wonderful, wonderful value. They started selling a sort of canned version of it, which they call Bud Chilata. Um, And don't knock it until you've tried it and try it as soon as you can. But again, Bud Bud Light and uh, Bud Chilata. Well, I regret to inform you that I am allergic to shellfish, so that's definitely Bud Chalada is worse than Bud Light is oh. worse than Budweiser. Um, sorry, I, for what it's worth, my all my all day drink of choice is what um, is what is known in my family as a Crawford County Margarita, mm. and uh, consists of basically three quarters uh, Yingling beer and mm-hmm. one quarter grapefruit juice. Mm-hmm. Serve over ice. You can drink it in pints. It will keep you hydrated. Um, it's it's an all day drink that you can't you can't touch. It's perfect. That's really really cool. But I'm so sad about clamato, uh, and you're never having had it, um, and you're being allergic to shellfish. I'm trying to think of what a good substitute would be. Have you ever mixed a V8 in a Bud Light? It's not quite there. But well, if you put some nutritional yeast in it, it might be it might sort of begin to emulate the flavor. Have you ever had a Bud Light V8 nutritional yeast Ed? No, I... Or Worcestershire sauce. Oh, yeah. You can make V8 Worcestershire sauce and Bud Light. I I accept that you are trying to push on me some kind of uh, beer-centered Bloody Mary. And I, you know, I'm I'm open to the idea. I I like Bloody Marys. I don't know why I wouldn't just have one of those. I don't know that I need... I don't know that I need to take the vodka out and put the beer in. But I'm open. I tell you what, J.D., I will make you this promise. I will make a Bloody Mary with uh, some kind of beer over this 4th of July, and I will report back. Um, right. it, I think do you, you, may have do to you add Tabasco to this? Is this best served spicy? Well, a Bud Chilada, it, one must drink a Bud Chilada as it comes, right? I mean, this is the thing is it's not wholly and entirely what you could do on your own, but it's the canned sort of 
approximation thereof. Uh, so if you want the experience of a bud chalada, I would say don't add, uh, uh, don't add, uh, what do you want to add? Tabasco. Uh, Tabasco. Don't add Tabasco. Okay. Um, but if you want to sort of spice it up and, and sort of, gen- if you want to gentrify this drink, Ed, you do what you like. No, I'm I'm happy to go for the authentic experience. Um, well, I'll just I, do V8 and Budweiser, I guess. Uh, put some Worcestershire sauce in there because you do need to do something to make up for the loss of the of the clam. Losing the clam loses you need the brine. The umami. Right? Yeah, exactly. You need the umami. So put some Worcestershire sauce okay. in there. And right. uh, I will look forward to hearing, Ed, how that went for you and how much you enjoyed it. And uh, believe it or not, so will some of our listeners. So we will hear all about Ed's upscale um, Clamato next week uh, when we will be back and you have been listening to the Pillar Podcast a production of Pillar Media I'm your host J.D. Flynn and I'm joined by my podcasting partner Ed Condon have a happy 4th of July everybody don't tread on me